Well, again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are so glad that you have joined us. Uh, you have kind of parachuted into uh, a series of sermons that we have been doing through Luke's gospel called Getting to Know Jesus. Uh, there's some folks in the aisles who are passing out Bibles. If you're here this morning and uh, you forgot your Bible or you need a Bible or you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands and we'd be happy to, to get one to you. Just raise them high so the, the brothers can see you. And uh, we'd be happy to get you a Bible. Jeff is one in the middle here. Young lady. Anybody else need a Bible? Brother in the back corner there, Bernie. Excellent. Now, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want for that to be our gift to you. Okay? Uh, We ordered a bunch of them for this exact purpose. So if you don't have a Bible... Uh, we, we would like nothing more than for you to have the Bible in your own home, in your own hands, and we pray in your head and heart, right? So take that, write your name in it, uh, walk out proudly with it. You're not stealing. It's a gift. Uh, and, uh, and, and commit yourself to it. It will never fail you, okay? So as I said before, we are in Luke's gospel, and we are in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 71. And uh, Matt, you got a page number on that? Page... 882. So if you're new to the Bibles, just turn to page 882, uh, and there you'll find Luke 22. If you're new to the Bibles and you hear me say the chapter number, chapter 22, that's the large number. When I say the verse number, um, verse 39, that's the small number. So we're in Luke 22, large number, verse, small number, 39. And as you turn there, um, let me remind you of fear. (laughs) We all have them. And one that almost all of us have in common is the fear of rejection. Anybody know that fear? I know the guys do. Every time they see someone they want to ask out on a date, the fear of rejection rushes up to the front. Right? Or maybe you've been in a job interview and you have really wanted that job. And you fear that they would not grant you that job. Are there people who would never work in telemarketing because that's just all day long rejection, right? (laughs) Fear of rejection. Maybe that's a cure uh, to the fear of rejection. Where does that fear come from? Well, I think the the researchers tell us that that fear of rejection comes from a, a basic desire to belong. And it comes from this desire not to appear or to feel like a failure. We don't want to be rejected from uh, social groups, and, and we don't want to feel cast off as failures. And so we have this sense that grows in the heart of, of, of fear. And we sort of want to pull back from rejection. Now, how many of you know that rejection is a part of life? We, we all suffer it. I asked Christy out six times before she went out with me. <laughs> I may be the one man in here who's gotten over fear of rejection, you know. Only in that case. <laughs> we've all suffered it. We've all felt it. We've, we've all been denied a job or been fired from a job. That happens. That's part of life. It's a hard part of life. It is part of life. Here's a question. What if your rejection or someone's rejection could be redemptive. What if being rejected actually led to your 
blessing. Not everything we desire is good for us. Getting everything we want tends to ruin us. Think of the little children that are sometimes spoiled. They, they cry, mine and parents, well-meaning, uh, give them everything they desire. Well, that person tends not to grow up and be the most generous guy in the neighborhood. A touch of rejection would have been good for them. Our text this morning occurs in two locations. You see there in verse 39, we start out on the Mount of Olives. But then we move, verse 54, to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas. And in these two locations, we experience five scenes. Jesus praying before his betrayal. Judas betraying the Lord with a kiss. Peter denying the Lord three times. The soldiers mocking and beating the Lord. And the priests and the scribes condemning the Lord at trial. At the heart of this passage is one central action. Everyone around Jesus rejects him. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see five rejections. Let me give them to you. He is rejected by the Father, verses 39 to 46. He is rejected by Judas, verses 47 to 53. He is rejected by Peter, verses 54 to 62. He is rejected by the mockers, verses 63 to 65. And he is rejected by the priests, verses 66 to 71. And here's the main thing to see in the text. The Lord Jesus Christ accepted complete rejection so that sinners with faith in Christ might receive complete acceptance. This rejection is redemptive if we believe. Look with me, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. Touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Father, we pray that you would make your word living to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would quicken us, every hearer, give light to every heart. Help us, O oh Lord, to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Notice the first rejection. The Lord Jesus Christ on this night that he was betrayed was, in a sense, rejected by the Father. Remember that verses 1 to 38 record Jesus having what we call the Last Supper with his disciples? As he eats that supper with his followers, two things are revealed. That one, he is the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And two, that Judas, one of his friends, will betray him. Verse 39 tells us that they have finished the supper. They have come out of the upper room. And Jesus had a habit or a routine, you see there, as was his custom. They went to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On that faithful night, the Lord had prayer on his mind. Instructs his disciples to pray, see there in verses 40, and again in verse 46. With the cross just hours away, you'd think the Lord would ask them to pray for him. He doesn't, does he? He invites them to pray for themselves, that they may not enter into temptation. The Lord's not the only one in danger that night. The disciples will face threats from within, temptations of various sorts. But at the center of the scene is Jesus' own prayers. There in verses 41 and 42, it tells us that he walked off a little distance by himself. And this is what Jesus asked of God the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus made this petition three times of the Lord. If you are willing, remove this cup. If you are willing, remove this cup. If you are willing, remove this cup. The time of prayer was so strenuous that an angel from heaven, the text says, strengthened him. And in agony, as he prayed, he, he sweated. Sweat that was drops of blood. Because of this cup. The cup has two references. On the one hand, the cup symbolizes or refers to the cup of God's wrath. The Bible often symbolizes wrath as a, as a cup of strong, destructive drink. Like, like wine, which intoxicates and, and causes one to lose his senses and to stumble. So the wrath of God in its, in its fury is, is blinding and, and incapacitating. In order to save sinners from their sin, the Lord Jesus will have to drink this cup or suffer the wrath of God in our place. The cup contains all God's righteous fury and indignation against all the sins of the world of all time. He will suffer for it all. The Lord knew that he came into the world for this very hour and purpose, but this hour and purpose is so unimaginably stressful that even the Son of God asked three times if he might not go through it. Can you imagine being judged for every person's sin and everything? That is the cup of God's wrath. But it is also the cup of God's salvation. The bitter wrath results in our sweet rescue from judgment in hell. In that agonizing scene of prayer, God the Father did something that had never happened between father and son. The father, in a sense, rejects his son. Though the Son of God prayed three times to have this cup removed, each time God returns from heaven a silent no. Prayer that saves sinners was actually a prayer that was denied. The Father said no to Jesus in order to say yes to us, beloved. We tend to think that God's plans are accomplished by His saying yes to us, don't we? And here with His only Son, the Father accomplishes our salvation by saying no. Jesus must drink the cup. And our greatest deliverance comes, in that sense, from unanswered prayer. This whole scene teaches us a lot about prayer, doesn't it? Six quick things. Prayer protects us from temptation. You notice Jesus is instructing his disciples to, to pray so that they will not be tempted. The, the temptation has not yet come, but it always comes, beloved. We're never far from some beguiling suggestion of the world and the flesh and the devil. We're never far from some whisper that would destroy us. And Jesus says the inoculation against such temptation is prayer. Pray so that you would not be tempted. 
But prayer is also submission. Notice how Jesus prays here. Not my will, but your your will be done. And here's how we know if we're praying with trust in God, don't we? See, if we are trusting God, we begin and end our prayers this way, don't we? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we mean it. But if we're not, oh, this, this feels like a burden. Right? If we're so sure that our way is the right way, then we don't want to hazard the idea that God might have a different plan in mind. But prayer, true prayer, is submission. It is not bringing God in line with our desires. It's us conforming to God's desires. Here's the third thing we learn about prayer. Prayer is always answered, yet sometimes with a no. But we've never had a prayer go unanswered. We may not have heard the answer we wanted to hear. And we may have interpreted the silence as keep on praying. But we've never had a prayer go unanswered. Now, here's the thing. We have to learn, don't we, that we should welcome a no just as much as we welcome a yes. And we should welcome that no because we know the one who says no is good and only means good for us. And if he would withhold something for us, then that withholding is better than our receiving. The no, beloved, in prayer, it's filled with goodness. And here's the fourth thing. No to our prayer request is not equal abandonment. You see it there in verse 43, how the angels ministered to our Lord, strengthening him. The father was right there with the son, though he did not grant the son's request. And we can be tempted to think that in the silence that comes back to our prayers or the no that we feel from our prayers, that God has left us. That God has abandoned us. He has not abandoned his children, beloved. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. He is just as present with us in the no's he gives as with the yeses. And notice the fifth thing. No to our prayers does not necessarily equal a bad outcome. How quickly the spirit is downcast when we feel like our prayers are unanswered. But here the Lord is in agony, pleading with the Father three times, if you will, take this cup from me. And three times, heaven answers no. But on the other side of that no is our redemption. It is not ultimately a bad outcome. Ultimately, it is the greatest outcome imaginable. Christ will go to the cross. Christ will suffer for our sins in our place. He will die, but he will also be raised from the grave. And because of his obedience to the Father, Christ will receive a name that is above every name. And for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the agony of the cross, despising its shame. It was for joy that Christ endured the cross. His no was for his joy and for our redemption, for his glory and our salvation. It's incumbent upon us to learn that a no from God is not the same as a bad result. He is good. He has purposes in mind. One last thing we should say about prayer. Prayer requires effort and self-denial, doesn't it? He comes to them again in verses 44 to 46. Verse 45 says that they were tired from excessive sorrow. Anybody ever been so sad they couldn't pray? That's why they found it difficult to intercede even for themselves. However, 
Prayer is warfare against our flesh. We must not let our flesh have the last word when it comes to prayer. That would be itself given in to temptation. Oh, we, we war against the flesh and we press into the spirit and we pray. As the old divines have sometimes said, we pray until we pray. It's for our protection. It's for our blessing. Even when the answer is no. So see here Jesus in the garden on his knees sweating blood pleading for the cup to pass from him. Hearing a no from the Father. But see here in this no, in this rejection, our salvation. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is the God to whom we wish to introduce you. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who unlike the petty gods of mythology, he doesn't rule his creation with an iron fist and with lightning bolts from the sky. He doesn't remain detached from his people, and he's not cruel toward his creation. This God, the true God, the only living God, comes into the world for our salvation to rescue us from a judgment we deserve. And the way in which he rescues us is by entering into that judgment himself. Being rejected and scorned, mocked and beaten, punished by the Father in our place. To remove from us the guilt that we have and the judgment we deserve. And this same Jesus was raised from the grave three days later, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice and that he would justify or declare us right with him through faith in Jesus. You will never meet another God who has done more for your soul than Jesus Christ. You will never meet another true God. Trust his Jesus, the Savior of the world. Hope in him and follow him. He will forgive your sins. He will, as we sang a moment ago, make you whole. He will give you a brand new life, an eternal life. And it will be a life full of love and goodness. Trust him. He's worth it. He's rejected by the Father for our salvation. But notice number two, he's rejected by Judas. You see right there in verse 46 or verse 47, Uh, He was in the middle of calling the disciples to pray. While he was still speaking, up comes Judas leading a crowd against Jesus. If you let your eyes go back to verse six, you'll see there that Jesus has agreed with, or excuse me, Judas has agreed with the Lord's enemies to, to find a secret time and place in which to sell out Jesus to his enemies. Now, that betrayal depends on Judas exploiting his his intimate or close relationship with Jesus. And so notice the interesting description we're given of Judas, a man named Judas. Luke seems unable to write with any kind of friendship as if he knew Judas. A man named Judas, who was nonetheless one of the twelve. He was a member of Jesus' inner circles, the, the twelve that Jesus chose to be his apostles. So Judas exploits that intimacy of relationship. 
But notice, secondly, Judas had a, a close knowledge of Jesus's routine. He knew where the Lord liked to retreat to the Mount of Olives. He knew when the Lord would be there. In fact, Judas had been there with the Lord many times himself, eating with the disciples, praying and talking. He used that intimate knowledge of Christ to betray the Lord to those who wanted to murder him. And that wasn't enough. Judas used an intimate gesture kiss to betray the Lord. Verse 47, to say he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Think of all the things we communicate with a kiss. A couple signifies their marriage with a kiss. You may kiss the bride. A married couple communicates their love with a kiss on the lips or a, their romance with a kiss on the neck. Kissing a person's hand may communicate admiration or respect. Many people communicate friendship with a kiss on the cheek. That would have been true of Jesus' culture. It's still true in many places in the world. Even the early church was encouraged to greet one another with a holy kiss. And you know what all these things have in common? They never signify anything negative. They always signify some form of love be it friendship, or romance, or loyalty. Not until Judas betrays our Lord does a kiss become associated with this kind of negativity. He exploits the greeting of friendship and loyalty in order to betray the Lord. And with that gesture, Judas rejects Jesus, doesn't he? He rejects him as his Lord and Savior. With that gesture that was meant to communicate intimacy and partnership, Judas actually communicates rejection and the breaking of fellowship. And on the heels of that betrayal comes violence. Notice there in verse 49, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. <laughs> we know what this is, don't we? The disciples are like, ride or die. <laughs> they, they, they wake up. Now, they've been sleeping, right? Struggling to pray. And, and somehow or another, they see Judas come up, and they, and they recognize, oh, no, Judas is selling out Jesus. And they're up to a man. They say, look, shall we draw swords? Peter, don't wait. Peter, cut the, the ear off of the servant of the high priest. I love what my brother Leon Crump says about this. He said, listen. If you're in a scrape and your first instinct is to cut a man's ear off, that's not the first time you've done that. <laughs> he was like, you, you cut fish this way, but you cut off ears that way, you know. <laughs> Abby died laughing. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Peter, man, how, for real, how many ears you cut off, man? <laughs> they rise up. Because this betrayal has incited violence. And here's the thing. The Lord's kingdom will never be accomplished by violence. But the disciples had asked once before if they should call down thunder and lightning from heaven to devour some Samaritans who had rejected Jesus. And Jesus had told them earlier, you don't know what spirit you're of. That, that's not why I have come. It's not come in violence, but in love. And so he says in verse 51, no more of this. Our Lord is still in control. He limits the evil being done. 
Under his rule, there'll be, there be no violence. The, the Lord Jesus stands for what's good and what's right. If you ever get to know Jesus, know this about him. He's always good, even when it costs him his life. And not only does the Lord oppose violence, notice he heals the victim of it. Verse 51, Peter cuts the man's ear off. The Lord touches the servant's ear and healed him. Right in the middle of this potential riot, the Lord Jesus performs a miracle. He puts the man's ear back on. Now, here's my question. Why didn't everyone who came to arrest Jesus have second thoughts at that point? At least the servant, he felt that blade, felt his ear dangle off. I mean, he was like uh, Evander Holyfield when Mike Tyson bit him in the ear that time. He no doubt hopping around, man, trying to find his ear on the ground. And the Lord said, come here, buddy. Put his ear back on. And he could hear and wouldn't hurt no more. I think I would have switched sides. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what, man? I, uh, look, y'all on y'all own now, man. It's an amazing thing. Here it is. Jesus proves that he's a good guy. He heals even the one who has come to arrest him. And still, they carry out their plot. Here's the thing. It's an amazing and stubborn fact of life, but people don't always believe in God, even when he does good things for them. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But some people reject him and his kindness. And one reason people don't change their minds and follow Jesus is just plain old cowardice. They commit to their secret plans and they're afraid to change directions. The, the Lord rebukes the chief priests and the elders and officers of the temple for their cowardice in verses 52 and 53. Look there with me. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? In other words, look, man, I, you've never known me to be violent like this. Why are you coming with such force? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. And you'll recall, if you look at the first couple of verses of this chapter, it was because they were afraid of the people. They're cowards. But this is the hour and the power of darkness. Listen, beloved, don't let cowardice keep you from Christ. Don't let cowardice keep you from repentance and turning to Christ in faith. Turn to him. Have the courage of conviction. Have the courage that comes from faith. Think not about what the world will think. Think only about what God will think. The hour and power of darkness mentioned there in verse 53 refers to that moment in time when Jesus' betrayal and sacrifice is carried out. It's, it's time now for him to be handed over. If you read the Gospels all the way up until this point, you will sometimes hear Jesus say this, my time has not yet come. My time is not yet at hand. The time of his betrayal and his suffering, his crucifixion, well, it was not yet up until this moment. Here now is the moment. It's the hour of darkness. Satan will have his moment, but it is only an hour. It is only a short time, metaphorically. It is a period of darkness and a period of dark power. But it will not triumph. It will not last. It will not have the last word. Satan thinks he's conquered the Son of God. What he's really done is help complete the plan of God. Even cowardice and darkness are made to do God's bidding. He is sovereign. 
listen, beloved, betrayal like Judas's and violence and cowardice never win. We may be tempted to get back at someone. We may be tempted to betray someone. We may feel the sting of betrayal and want to respond in kind. Look at Jesus. He does not answer evil for evil. He answers evil with good. Jesus suffers at the hand of one of his close friends. That, that should never be. That should never happen to any of us in a perfect world. It should never be among us as Christians. Let's make all our expressions of affection and loyalty to Christ genuine and true. And let us make all our loyalty to one another true. We live in a world, don't we, where loyalty is in short supply. People sell you out quick and cheap just as Judas did. But among God's people, among those who see our Savior betrayed, this should never be. Churches are imperfect congregations. We are imperfect families. We are redeemed, but we are not perfected. And in the midst of our perfections, imperfections, excuse me, we sometimes fail each other. There's just no way to avoid that. If you don't want to be hurt by churches, the safest thing to do is not be in a church. That will only preserve you, though, from church hurt. It won't preserve you from the much worse hurt of the world who hates God. Better to be among God's people and sometimes suffer hurt because in true Christian loyalty, we know what to do when we fail each other. We confess we repent, we reconcile, and we go on in God's goodness and grace. And so a Christian church is a reconciling community. It's a community, yes, where we experience the, the, the betrayals that happen sometimes in a fallen world, but it's also a community where we experience the glorious grace of receiving each other again, of forgiving one another, and of going on in the freedom that forgiveness gives. That, beloved, is much safer than living in a world where forgiveness is not valued, but seen as weakness. Where eye for an eye and two for two is the rule of the day. Where for something as little as money or opportunity, uh, co-workers and politicians and even family members who don't know Christ sell one another out. Betrayal is a fact of life. But so is forgiveness and redemption. And it can be had with Christ and his people. Which brings us to the third rejection we see in this text. We see that Jesus was rejected by the Father as he prayed. We see that Jesus was rejected by Judas in his betrayal. And third, we see Jesus being rejected by Peter in that painful scene in verses 54 to 62. After the temple guard sees the Lord, verse 54 says, they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Notice in verse 54, Peter was following at a distance. Uh, that phrase is loaded with meaning. He's gradually disassociating himself from the Lord. Let us know this, beloved. We cannot safely follow Jesus, Jesus from a distance. We are meant to be close to him. In verse 31, the Lord had warned Peter that Satan was looking to destroy him. And Peter, in verse 33, responded very confidently, Lord, 
I said, ride or die. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. Peter, like one of those brothers, like, I ain't scared to go back to jail. <laughs> I ain't scared. Bring it. But you remember what the Lord said in verse 34? I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you die three times that you know me. Peter doesn't believe that. Peter trusts in his own self. In his own strength, he confides. But in the courtyard, the people make a fire. They plan to be there a while, apparently. Verse 55, Peter sat down among them. At this point, you may recall what the first psalm in the first verse says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Apparently, Peter has forgotten that verse. He goes from walking at a distance in the crowd to standing in the courtyard to sitting among them. And that's when the three denials happen. First, the servant girl, verse 56. She takes a good look at Peter. You can see her sitting out there by the, by the light of the fire, sort of leaning in, straining, looking, studying his face. And when she's sure, she says, this man also was with him. Peter denies it in verse 57. And he sounds indignant. Woman, I don't know him. What a lie. Second, an, un- an unnamed man simply called someone else saw Peter. He didn't have to study Peter's face the way the servant girl did. He merely saw Peter and knew Peter was one of the Lord's followers. He says, you also are one of them. But Peter denies the Lord again, saying, man, I am not. You can imagine he's getting more strenuous in his effort to convince people that he is not a follower of Christ. Two opportunities to be loyal. Two opportunities to claim Jesus as his master. Two lies. Two rejections. The rooster is stirred. Verse 59 says, an interval of about an hour passed. And in that hour, perhaps Peter began to relax. Perhaps he thought no one else would bother him. Maybe he thought his lies at work. Maybe in that hour, the very earliest rays of dawn began to crack the sky. And a third man speaks up. Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. This third unnamed man not only recognized Peter as a disciple, but also Peter's connection with Galilee and Jesus' ministry in that area. The followers of Christ are better known by the world than we recognize, beloved. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Third denial. As the words left Peter's mouth, notice the text. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. I imagine the sound of a rooster has never been more terrifying or heartbreaking. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Everything that needed to be said was in their eyes. In that gaze between master and disciple, was it seen an eternity of communication? All they needed to understand about what had just happened was transferred in a look. In fact, this whole scene is about looks, isn't it? Peter doesn't want to look like a disciple. 
What if Peter had responded differently to the servant girl's look? Or the man's look of recognition? Or taken a moment to acknowledge that, yes, he looked like a Galilean. If Peter had been honest in those earlier looks, could he have avoided this final look? If he had thought nothing of the knowing looks of the people in the courtyard, could he have avoided the knowing look of the Lord in his rejection? That look from the Lord was followed by Peter's memory of the Lord's saying regarding the rooster. Then came the bitter tears of a man who had rejected the Lord. For the believing, there can only be bitter tears in such failures. I remember reading the story of a young man who had been a companion of um, Billy Graham. They had started out preaching together as young men. It was he who recommended that Billy Graham become the sort of spokesperson for um, you for Christ. By all accounts, he was a more powerful preacher than Billy Graham. In fact, it's, it's thought that he, if he had stayed on the trail, we would be saying Billy who? But at some point, convinced of the sort of knowledge of the day that was coming out of universities like Princeton and Yale, the, the higher criticism that undermined the Bible, he decided that he could no longer believe in the miracles of Scripture. He could no longer believe in a virgin birth, that all of that was too pre-scientific. And the account is told where he meets with Billy Graham just on the eve of going off to university, meet in the hotel room with this purpose. He wants to convince Graham to come with him to the university. And they meet for hours and they talk. And Graham tries to persuade him to remain of evangelical conviction. And after hours, Graham has failed to be persuasive and he has failed to persuade Billy Graham to come to university. And they part. The man extends his hand to shake Graham's. Graham refuses. And he would say later, he felt that if he had shaken that man's hand, he would have been drawn off the path of Christ. The man goes on to study at Princeton, I believe it is. He, at Princeton, getting this education, abandons the truth of the scripture more and more. Nonetheless, he continues to preach and he establishes a church in Toronto, plants a church there. It initially grows at, at, for some years and then begins to decline. He leaves the, the pastoral ministry and takes up an itinerant ministry for some time until finally he abandons the faith altogether and writes an autobiography telling his story of abandonment. Late in life, he's interviewed by Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel is asking him questions about this whole journey and this process. And one of the things that Lee Strobel asks him near the end of the interview is, what does he think of Jesus now? The long pause. His voice cracking. And tears begin to flow. I miss him. And then Strobel says, in a moment, as if to pull himself together, he snaps. That's enough of that. And returns to his barren, stoic self. Those bitter tears are the consequence of rejecting Jesus. And it may be that you're rejecting Jesus this morning. And you say, preacher, I don't know any tears. 
rejecting Christ. Beloved, on the day of judgment, you will. You will weep and gnash your teeth. For you have missed the greatest love of all. Peter goes away weeping bitterly. I notice that Peter and Judas are alike in this general sense. They have rejected Christ. But they're really quite different. Judas intentionally sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was the son of perdition. He was an unrepentant man destined for judgment. But Peter failed the Lord despite his honest commitment to the Lord. That's why the Lord restores Peter before the story is over. Peter really did want to ride or die with Christ. He really intended to stand with Jesus. But in the hour of darkness, Peter's courage failed him. There's a tremendous difference, beloved, between wickedness and weakness. Between Judas and Peter. Wickedness receives judgment. Weakness receives help and comfort. Nothing could be more important than making an accurate diagnosis of our failures. Do they come from wickedness or weakness? Is our heart darkened with sin or are our frames but dust? The Lord rejects the wicked, but Christ will receive the weak. He invites them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In fact, Christ knew Peter's weakness and he knows our weakness. He places himself in this position of rejection so that he might be familiar with our weakness and help us with it. So, beloved Christian, are you weak? Christ is strong. Are you unable to stand in the hour of temptation? Run to Christ who defeats our temptation. Do not try to stand in your own strength. Fall into your weakness and discover the strong arms of God. Weakness is but an invitation to trust the Lord Jesus Christ with what we cannot trust ourselves with, our very souls. And Christ will not let him go. Oh, though we reject him a thousand times and be like Peter, he will never reject us. He will keep us until he is. Run to him, our strong power, their safety. There's a fourth rejection here. Jesus is rejected by the Father. He's rejected by Judas. He's rejected by Peter. And he's rejected by the soldiers, the mockers, in verses 63 to 65. Look there with me. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Consider the nature of this rejection. It's both physical and personal, isn't it? They not only beat the Lord, they also mock him. The previous rejections were personal in the sense that they betrayed the intimacy of friends. This rejection is personal in the sense that it comes right after Jesus psychologically and and attacks our Lord's character. They aim to discredit and to disgrace the Lord. Specifically, they're mocking the Lord as a prophet. A prophet is one who brought the very word of God to the people. These temple soldiers reject the idea that Jesus Christ really brought God's message. They focus on the people's claim that Jesus was a prophet and they revile him for it. They play a little game. They blindfold him and take turns hitting him. And this no doubt would have seemed funny to the dark mind. They say, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? 
So can you imagine the day of judgment when they appear before Christ and he says, by the way, I know it was you. Verse 65. They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. To blaspheme someone is to slander them, to speak against their person. Luke simply gives us this summary statement. You can imagine the things that were said would not be fitting to say or write if you love the Lord. Many of us have committed blasphemy against the Lord, haven't we? Especially before we were convinced of our sin and came to believe that he is indeed not only a prophet, but the son of God. When I was a Muslim, I blasphemed Jesus by rejecting that he was the son of God. How many of us who have never been Muslims, nonetheless, have taken his name in vain? And some of us mock the Lord with accusations like, if Jesus really is God, why doesn't he fill in the blank? We see this rejection of the Lord and we tend to feel anger at the soldiers. And, and perhaps we think these men deserve to be judged. If they, if they never repented, then they were judged, in fact. But there's good news, Goliath, for blasphemers, too. Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. What kind of God forgives blasphemers? Only the kind of God who willingly suffers that blasphemy in order to save the blasphemer. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is so full of love and mercy that he makes a way for those who dishonor him to share in his honor. Maybe that's you. Here's the promise from Matthew 12 again. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven people. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. There is forgiveness for the worst blasphemer through faith in the Son of God. The only rejection that is final is his rejection of us. While we have life, there is time to repent and to submit to his lordship. I do so, beloved, even now. And we come to our final rejection in verses 66 to 71. You see that verse 66 refers to the assembly of the elders, both the chief priests and the scribes. They lead him away to their council, to their to their religious court. The established religious leadership put Jesus on religious trial. According to verse 67, their main concern is whether or not Jesus is the Christ. You realize that the Lord is the only person in history to be put on trial for who he claimed to be. They, of course, don't really want to know the answer to that question. That's the point the Lord makes in verses 67 and 68. Look there. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. The Lord knows that these men are willfully blind. They are committed to unbelief. It does not matter what he tells them. They will find a way to reject it or to avoid it. Here is the hardest heart of all. The heart that refuses all proof and reason. The heart that refuses to admit what it knows. These men have hardened their hearts in precisely this way. But the hardness of man's heart cannot stop the advancement of God's plan. Despite their unbelief, the Lord goes on to say, but from now on, 
The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, there's nothing you can do to keep me from reigning in honor with God. And using the title the Son of Man, Jesus does tell them that he is the Christ and the Son of God. That's why they respond the way they do in verse 70. They knew that the Son of Man was a title taken from Daniel chapter 7, was a reference to uh, a deity, one like the Ancient of Days who receives honor and glory and majesty and power to rule over all the nations. Jesus uses that title like the pronoun I. And they ask, are you the Son of God then? The Lord hangs them with their own words. They got the reference to the Son of Man. They knew what he was saying. You say that I am. Then comes the final rejection. They said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Ever been in a conversation with someone where no matter what you say, they take it and twist it and condemn you with it? If you haven't, you don't have a Twitter account. That's what they do here. Larry King once said the person he'd most like to interview is Jesus Christ. Mrs. King said he'd only have one question for him. Were you really born of a virgin? Mr. King says the answer to that question would define human history. But I'd love to tell Mr. King that we have the eyewitness testimony to that fact in the scripture. Why does he look for further proof? Why does he need another testimony? Mr. King seems to me a very polite man and a wonderful interviewer. But I wonder if he isn't making the same mistake that these priests and scribes are. He's just finding a polite way to disregard the evidence that's already there. You see, it's easy to reject Jesus by claiming to need more information. Many people hide behind what they don't know in order to avoid what they do know. One person has said, I'm not bothered by the confusing parts of the Bible. I'm bothered by the clear parts. And nothing is clearer in the Bible than the fact that we are sinners and that God is angry because of our sins. And nothing is clearer in the Bible than the fact that God is a God of love. And in his infinite love, he has provided a sacrifice for us to rescue us from that judgment and to free us from sin and to make us his own people. And nothing is clearer in the Bible than the fact that we are called all men everywhere to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and to follow him as our God. See, it's the clear part that bothers some people. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you know that that's clear and yet you are looking for some reason not to believe it, you're fooling no one but yourself. You would be wiser to believe what you know than to risk your soul on what you don't know. This Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He has died to pay the penalty for our sins, and he has been raised again for our justification, and he is coming again to receive all those who believe in him 
and to finally judge all those who reject him. Here's a section of scripture with a long line of rejections from Judas to Peter to the soldiers to the priests. Why is it here? So that we would not follow in their steps and make the same damnable mistakes. But that we would be sober and that we would be joyful and that we would come to Christ and live. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. It would be unwise to turn away from his acceptance and reject him any further. Come to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our hearts don't sing what wondrous love is this. We do sing that your love is amazing. And we do mourn that any should reject it. Lord, you are fierce in your wrath. You are righteous in your judgment. Uh, All of your judgments are holy and true. And there is no sinner who will escape it. But you are also merciful and loving and gracious and kind. Oh, and your grace does abound even to the chief of sinners. And so we pray, Lord, set aside your wrath to conquer a heart this morning. Set aside your judgment to extend a life this morning. Set aside, oh Lord, the, 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 the exacting and the perfect decree of guilt. And instead, oh Lord, would you in your love woo and influence and persuade and subdue and conquer in grace and love the heart of the hardest among us. Oh Lord, if you will not save, then all will be lost. If you will not change the heart, then our hearts will condemn us. If you will not, oh Lord, change our minds, then we will continue in darkness. Such is the state of the sinner apart from Christ. Oh Lord, so bring them to Christ in the power of your spirit. And Lord, all those here who have known the wounds of betrayal, would you, O oh Lord, as one who has been betrayed like us, comfort them, come near to them, grant them grace. And would you let us know you more deeply in all of your wonderful love. This we ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.